And uh, open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 5, where we'll be spending our time today. In Fusion, you've got a sheet that's got some great questions on. Why did Pharaoh not listen to Moses and Aaron? That's a good one to start with. Now, we all know how it goes. Be a good girl, and you can have some sweets. Tidy your room up, and you'll get your pocket money. Do your homework, and you'll get good grades. Hit your commission target, and you'll get a bonus. Jump through these hoops, and Ofsted will say you're outstanding. Work hard, and your life should go well. Here's the logic. If you're a good person, you should get a good life. You get what you pay for. Every good boy deserves treats. This is the basic fabric of most people's lives. It's everywhere. It's so much a part of the background, we don't really notice it. It's about a sense of justice, of cause and effect, based on Merit, you deserve it, you worked for it, it should be yours. If I do the right thing, I should be rewarded. If I do wrong, I get no reward or get punished. Parents, just watch a couple of episodes of Thomas the Tank Engine with your child and you will see how relentlessly this message is driven home. Quite poisonous. And we instinctively like this when it comes, we think like this when it comes to religion. If I'm good, if I say my prayers, I go to church, I'm a decent person, then God will surely be fair and I will get what I deserve. In the 1960s, my dad was a young man. He worked in Manchester in the Bank of Ireland. And in that bank in the 60s, there were no computers obviously. So what, what was the account, what were the accounts written in was an enormous book called the Ledger. And the bank clerks had to have beautiful, clear handwriting because that's where income and, out, and expenditure was recorded in the book, the big ledger. And my dad says that as a teenager, he thought, my life is like this. There's a credit column and there's a debit column. The good stuff goes in credit, the sins go in the debit, And one day, God will add it all up. My good deeds will be in credit. And then I'll get my reward. A lot of people think of God as basically like a bank manager. You don't have a personal relationship with your bank manager, probably. But if you make enough payments, you'll be all right. You're keeping credit. And most religion operates like this. You've got to do all you can to please the gods and then you'll be all right. You'll get your ticket to heaven or whatever it is. But the Bible is radically different from that. And that's why in one way, it's, it's, Christianity is not really a religion. It's about a relationship with a ruler. The essence of Christianity is about God being the ruler, the king. His name, his personal name we've learned in in Exodus is Yahweh, which means I am the God who is. I am who I am. And this ruler, this eternal one, is someone you can know personally. 
You can be in a relationship with him. And Exodus is all about how to know the Lord. Now, when you get into a close relationship with, with someone, you always find out that there's much more to them than you thought at the start. And it's the essence of true friendship that it is discovery. And as the friendship grows, you have to adapt to new discoveries, maybe surprises. And if the friendship can't cope with that, then there are real limits to it. Now, if you end up getting really close to someone and marrying them, you may well find that the real them is quite different from who you thought they were at the start. Hopefully, the surprises won't be too disastrous, but you may find some. Now, in the same way, when you get to know the Lord, Yahweh, you discover things about him that are not what you expected at first. He is a lot more complex than your bank manager. Now, our text today gives us some important depth and nuance to our relationship with the Lord. It will show us that he is not simply in the business of giving instant reward or punishment, depending on your behavior. He's much more sophisticated than that, we might say. And we also discover that God's rescue plan for human beings runs on his timetable, not on ours. That's what the Israelites find out, and we're finding it out too in our lives. He's the sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one with a plan. He's the one who knows all things and can do all things, not us. So how can you and I get to know the Lord more deeply in Exodus? And the answer is by reading, as Mary's done, and thinking through the story together and pondering the narrative and its details. And that's how we get to know the Lord. And we shouldn't assume that the things will always be obvious and easy and straightforward. God invites us to know him. And we will find him more wonderful than we ever expected. Here is the main thing I think this passage teaches us today. Your life might get worse, but God is in control. Your life may get worse, but God is in control. And that's probably not what you wanted to hear when you came to church this morning. But I think it's a fair reflection of Exodus chapter 5. There's a sequence of three things that unfold in this story. And amazingly, these three things all begin with the letter O. It's incredible. Firstly, we find obedience. Then we see opposition. And finally, oppression. Obedience, it kind of goes downhill. Obedience, opposition, oppression. Firstly, obedience. Just look back, turn back the page to uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. And remember what God has told Moses. Verse 16, go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery into the land of the Canaanites and all the otherites. That's great. Verse 18, so the elders of Israel will listen to you. It's going to work. This is just simple, obedient, and they'll listen. Then you and the elders go to the king of Egypt, and you say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey and offer sacrifices. So in chapter 4, Moses, we thought last week, has a certain crisis. He doubts. 
And we thought about how it's okay to doubt. It's healthy, natural. It's what you do with your doubt that, that matters. Don't deny them. Work them through in community with God's people and with him. He doubted, but God reassured him again and again and again. And so they come, and, and God provides him a partner. His brother, his older brother, is going to come and stand alongside, and he's an articulate man and will work with him and be his supporter and spokesman. And they gather the elders together at the end of chapter 4. Moses and Aaron, verse 29, brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and they, Aaron tells them what the Lord has says, and, uh, and they perform the signs which God has given them, and they... It is a great moment because for the first time, the leaders of the slave nation are seeing glimmers of hope, that the first glimmers of hope they've seen in a very long time. And Moses and Aaron tell them everything, and they believe, and they bow down and worship God. The mission is getting off to a fantastic start, isn't it? At this rate, Exodus is going to be wrapped up by the end of chapter 5. We can go have lunch and then start on Leviticus. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's absolutely epic. Don't let it pass you by. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Pause. They went to Pharaoh. Now, what do you think that looked like? The film Exodus, Gods and Kings epic uh, film directed by Ridley Scott about uh, less than 10 years ago. Who played Moses? Christian Bale. Batman. Now Christian Bale was about 40 and the bloke who played Aaron was 43. And if you haven't seen the film, you can probably imagine how they were portrayed. They had been to the gym a few times in the run-up to that film. For me, it was like looking in the mirror. <laughs> but according to the Bible, Moses was 80. And Aaron was 83. No offense to any octogenarians here. These guys are not bursting in on Pharaoh like Batman and Robin, are they? Kapow! Boom! They're old men. Moses probably needs his staff to lean on. All the while hoping it doesn't turn into a snake. <laughs> What about Pharaoh? We're not talking about Rishi Sunak, you know, an elected official who went to public school, speaks the Queen's English. The Egyptians think that Pharaoh is a god, the incarnation of a god. He has divine status, not democratic status. That means his power is unlimited. His words have the force of a divine utterance. His will is incontestable law. And remember that this pharaoh's predecessor had decreed that hundreds of baby boys should be killed because he perceived that people might be a threat, infanticide. Nobody questions that. Moses and Aaron are coming before a powerful, ruthless, clever, manipulative man who holds all the cards. That's who these two old geezers are up against. <laughs> and where are the elders? The elders of the people, they're supposed to be there too. Chapter 5, verse 1 implies that Moses and Aaron ended up going in alone. Where have they all gone? Yeah, they've stepped forward and they stepped back. An ancient Jewish tradition said that the elders slipped away one by one. So chapter 5, verse 1 is just wonderful. Obedience, they come. 
They've been told and they come. And they boldly announce their message with the words, thus says the Lord. Sadly, our, our, our church Bible here, I think, loses a bit. It says, this is what the Lord says. But the older translations and the ESV has this phrase, thus says the Lord, which is a very powerful phrase. It's the first time in the Bible that phrase is used. And it is a formula used by a messenger. Like an ambassador coming from a foreign country in the medieval times would come to London and stand in the public square and say, thus says the king of France or whoever. And this is, they are announcing the message from God. Thus says the Lord. This is how prophets speak. These are not their own ideas. This is not a suggestion. This is not a piece of good advice. They are messengers from Yahweh himself. They must have had faith to do this. They are now obeying the Lord who has appeared in the burning bush and promised that Pharaoh will let them go. So, of course, everything from this point on should go really well, shouldn't it? Everything should go swimmingly. I mean, if God makes a promise to you, uh, he's going to rescue you and you obey, then therefore everything will work out in your life from then on, won't it? No. Because remember the lesson from the passage, your life may get worse, but God is in control. So we move quickly from their obedience to opposition. Opposition, look at chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is not about factual recognition. This is contempt. Pharaoh recognized lots of different gods. He could have just acknowledged there's a new one in town and paid the Israelites a bit of respect, but he's having none of it. I do not know him means I don't recognize his authority at all. Your God is means nothing to me. He regards himself as superior to Yahweh, who after all is the God of a slave nation. So he treats the request with a sneer of cold command. Now, this is not quite what Moses and Aaron thought was going to happen. So they try again with a bit more detail. Verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Just for clarification. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now, reference to plagues and the sword is a conventional way of talking about divine judgment. If we don't obey him, he may strike us with divine judgment. And us means all of us, Pharaoh, your people as well. But Pharaoh is not exactly quaking in his boots here, is he? He thinks he's seen through it. And he certainly doesn't want to lose his workforce of cheap slave labor. So he dismisses them and he says, verse 4, get back to your work. Now, by doing this, Pharaoh is setting himself on a collision course with the Lord. Ironically, he has asked the key question of the book. The question is, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? And the rest of the book is the answer to that question. The answer is that he is the true God, the living God, the one whom everyone should worship and serve and love. And Pharaoh, a mere human king, has set himself up as an alternative God by insisting that they serve him instead. And in verse, chapter 5, verse 10, over the page, 
he uses the same words in, in response. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh. He's throwing down the gauntlet. Thus says the Lord, all right, this is what I'm saying to you. You're not going to have any more straw. It's a direct challenge. Who is God? Whose claim will win? Now, how do you suppose Moses and Aaron were feeling at this point? I could imagine they were thinking, this, this wasn't supposed to happen. How can this be part of the plan? We were just doing what the Lord said. We obeyed. Where was he? Why didn't he show up in our hour of need? And I wonder if you've ever felt that, Christian friend here. Where is God when I needed him most? Why doesn't he keep to the timetable that I thought we were agreed on? Does he keep his promises? He says he cares, but I'm really hurting. I've been obedient, but now I'm suffering. And soon the whole Israelite population is going to be asking these questions because we move from obedience and opposition to the third movement, which is oppression. Oppression. In April 1975, a far-left group called the Khmer Rouge seized control of the capital city of Cambodia, a city called Phnom Penh. And within days, the city's population of three million people were marched into the countryside at gunpoint. It marked the beginning of four years of terror as the Khmer Rouge turned Cambodia into a vast concentration camp. They declared a new era. They said it was year zero, a new calendar. And they directed a ruthless program to purify their society of all capitalism, Western culture, purify it of all religion and any foreign influences. Their vision was of an isolated, totally self-sufficient state. Resistance was futile. Foreigners were kicked out. Embassies closed. They abolished the currency. Schools, newspapers, religion, private property were outlawed. Members of the government, public servants, the police, military, teachers, religious leaders, middle-class people were identified and then killed. Towns and cities were emptied. The entire population was driven out into agricultural collectives working to plant rice in the paddy fields, which became known as the killing fields. Families were torn apart as children were encouraged to spy on their parents and tell the secret police. Something like one and a half million Cambodians were worked or starved to death. They died of disease or exposure, or they were executed for infringements of camp discipline. Infringements included complaining, slacking, wearing jewelry, grieving, or any kind of praying or expressing religious sentiment. One woman escaped. Her name was Var Hong Ash, and she wrote about her experiences in a book, From Phnom Penh to Paradise. She described the work in the fields like this. As the work intensified, and we needed all the energy we could get, the food ration was reduced to one milk tin of rice per person per day, plus one spoonful of salt per family per day. 
it seems scarcely enough to fill the gnawing hunger in our bellies. Every day during the lunch hour, people swarmed into the paddy fields to catch small fish, crabs, snails, frogs. In fact, anything which moved was much sought after to supplement our meager diet of rice and salt. And within four years, a quarter of the population had died. So it's within living memory. Now, chapter 5 of Exodus is that. It's a picture of the ruthlessness of an oppressive system. And it shows the misery and the depths of Israel's situation. What is it like to be oppressed? There's a sense of absolute helplessness that pervades everything, especially people's psychology. You've got nowhere to turn, nowhere to hide or escape. The machine is so organized and you're just a tiny little cog. Pharaoh perceives the threat here. So he decides he's going to wear them out, exhaust them, keep them so busy that they've got no time for rebellion or complaint. He demands that they find their own straw, an essential ingredient in the manufacture of bricks, but they have to keep up with the same quota of brick production. It's a masterstroke of manipulation. He will exhaust them. And he controls the media. He uses spin and propaganda. By labeling them as lazy, he shifts the blame onto them. It's your fault. You're the lazy ones. You should work harder. He's messing with their heads. Not just that, he takes a divide and conquer approach. Look at verse 14. Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers that they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? The slaves' drivers beat the foreman. What's that going to do for community relations? They won't get organized. They'll be divided between each other. And the message under the surface is this. Don't bite the hand that feeds. Don't mess with the system. We were better off before Moses came along. In the old days. At least we had food then. And we could make bricks with straw. Now, incredibly, Pharaoh manages to get the oppressed people to rely on him and to believe that their happiness depends on him. He creates dependence. And by the way, it will take years and years for them to, to be weaned off this and get this out of their heads. It takes a lot longer to get... Sorry, I'll start that sentence again. It is easier to get the Israelites out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of the Israelites, we will find later. And if they feel badly treated, ultimately whose fault is it? Moses and Aaron. Things were so much better before they came along. You can see how effective this strategy is in verse 19. Have a look at it. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you're not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. And when they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. Now some scholars think that the words found here means they really laid into them. They may have manhandled them. These are a bunch of men who work producing bricks all day. They're not a bunch of sensitive poets and musicians. You know, these are men who, who work in construction. They've got big muscles and tattoos. And they have to report to a tyrant. And they're not happy. They found them. They laid into them. They said, make the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh. So the whole plan looks like it's going completely wrong, doesn't it? How much better it was before you came. 
The community's divided. The people are discouraged. The rescue mission looks dead in the water. Now step back just for a minute. Who started all this? Whose idea was it? Whose plan is this? It's the Lord. This is his plan. And he's promised salvation, rescue, a new land. And what has happened? Right now, life just got worse. Much worse. Now this is a lesson written down for us that we need to learn about trusting God and following the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises rescue. He has a plan. And that promise and plan are rock solid. But for a while, our lives might get worse. We should not be surprised if it does. We should not be resentful. This is part of the territory. It's part of the life of faith. Now, God's people face the same challenges as everyone else in the world. You face the challenges of uh, rising inflation and a credit crunch. You face sicknesses. You face job issues. You face that depression. You face money worries. You face stuff with your kids. All of that thing. But God's people also have some special challenges that are just for us. The struggle with sin and temptation. The fight against the devil. Opposition to Christians. Persecution that comes in various forms. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean your problems are going to go away right now. Some of them might. But you may get a whole bunch of new problems If you're a person here who is exploring the Christian faith, you're not a, a believer yet, or you're not sure of your faith commitments, I want to be just so honest with you that this is what it means. Following Jesus might not solve all your problems right now. Your life might get worse. But God is in control. Now, we need to hear this. We all do because we all tend to default back to that kind of merit theology. You know, if you're good, you get some sweets. And we all tend to sort of, in our hearts, we tend to say, oh Lord, why is this happening to me? This terrible thing. I've been such a good Christian. I served so hard in the church. You know, I even served in the children's work. And now this is happening to me. What's going on? But the first lesson in Israel's redemption is, that, is the one that we weren't expecting. It's that your life may get worse but God is still in control and has a plan. And any message, any gospel that promises you freedom from trouble, promises you wealth, promises you health, right now is a lie. God does promise us freedom from trouble, health and wealth. It's just the timing that's the issue. That's all in the future. Right now your life may be a veil of troubles. A pastor friend wrote to me and said, we have a girl coming to our church who was sold into modern-day slavery at the age of 12 by her family. She left the trade once before and she got involved with the church, with a church, but in her own words, she thought it would all work out and she would be prospering now because that was the message of the church. It's a false message. Tough times hit again. She didn't understand the real gospel. And now she's saying she wants to know the real Jesus. She will agree to discipleship. She wants to leave her old way of life for good. She hasn't worked for two weeks now. 
Can we help with accommodation? You see where this, this really connects with real life? Your life might actually get worse for a while when you start following Jesus Christ. You need to know that in spite of it, God is in control and has a plan and his ways ultimately will be seen to be good. So what are you going to do now? If you're in this hard spot, where do you go when things get worse? The thing is, there's only one place to go, and that's to God himself. It's like being severely told off by your mum and crying and feeling angry, and the only place you've got to go for comfort is your mum and run back to her. And this is why I think the end of this chapter is so lovely. I'm glad Horace picked it up in his prayer. Look at this, the relationship again. Ch- chapter 5, verse 22. Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Why? Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. And so he speaks up and he takes the hard questions and he goes to God and he asks them. And guess what? God doesn't strike him down with a bolt of lightning. How dare you? He takes his pain to the Lord. He doesn't hide his head in the sand. He doesn't sulk and throw his toys out. He doesn't sentimentalize it or with God talk. He's really in trouble. He doesn't deny the faith and walk away. He goes to God with the questions. He takes his pain. He takes his tears. He takes his anguish and he bangs on heaven's door and he asks the Lord, Why, O Lord, I don't get it. And notice here that God is not angry with him for doing so. He doesn't blast Moses. He doesn't say, how dare you question me. He listens. He responds. And he says in chapter 6, verse 1, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God doesn't actually promise something new here. The plan hasn't changed. It's a restatement of the earlier promise. It's underlining it. The promise still stands. Yes, for a time, things got worse. God is not surprised by that. He's still concerned. He will still rescue the Israelites. But somehow, listen to this, somehow their suffering is part of the rescue plan. And we don't always know how or why. He will rescue them on his timetable, not theirs. Now, we never get this at the time. But dare I say it, this decision is somewhat above our pay grade. His ways are not our ways. He is God. Now, the fullest expression of this, of the gospel, is in the book of Romans, a letter in the New Testament written to Christians living in Rome. And after reviewing God's work of salvation and God's work of judgment, the Apostle Paul, the writer, bursts out into praise with these words in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God would have to repay them? For from him 
and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's the place of maturity we want to get to. To be able to burst out and say that when we're weeping about the the, the misery of our people, which Paul was. What does this story ultimately mean? I mean beyond chapter 5, later in the book. Spoiler alert. What it ultimately means is full freedom and the destruction of Pharaoh and his oppressive military machine. It means coming out of Egypt, not just escaping you know, with your sandals on, but coming out laden down with gold and silver and good things, fine cloths, which the Egyptians give them, and plundering the Egyptians and getting back pay for all those years of misery. And it also means that a whole multitude of people come out with them. It's not just the Israelites that escape. A whole mixed multitude come out. They want to join the people too because they've seen the greatness of the Lord. And it means that this story is a lesson to the whole world, a lesson that we are still learning more than 3,000 years later, that Yahweh is king, not Pharaoh, not the latest bully, the latest dictator in our world. God is king and there is no other. So the delay brings good to Israel and glory to God. Now, friends, this is what you have to do when things go wrong in life. Take your turmoil and pain to God and wrestle it through with him. Then stand back and wait for him. See where it might go for your good and his glory long term. Yes, our lives might get worse right now, but God is in control. He has a plan and he will bring about salvation in his good time. For your good and for his glory. And the guarantee that you have and I have is not actually just Moses and the Israelites. They're just a shadow. They're just a picture, a guarantee of what's to come, which is so much better because we have someone better than Moses. Like the Israelites, we have a messenger from God who comes and says, thus says the Lord. He was chosen for this very purpose. He saw God on a holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. He was assured of God's presence through his ordeals. God strengthened him. He proved his calling to the leaders and people, yet they turned against him. He was brought before a godless king. And he was sentenced to death. And it looked as if that messenger was going to see his entire mission go up in smoke. Things got a lot worse for the most obedient human being who ever lived. Things got a lot worse in the life of Jesus Christ. Yet God was in control and doing something through him far greater than anyone could have imagined. And this Jesus is our Moses. He leads us out of slavery in his own time. We are not beamed up instantly to a better world. We are called to struggle through in this one. Trusting him and his promises. Why the delay? For our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we want to bring our uh, struggles before you now, uh, whatever they are, and, and just take a moment and call them to mind, not push them down, but call to mind the thing that's hurting the thing that's grieving, the thing that's discouraging, the thing that's making us doubt, and just bring it into your presence here and now in the company of your people.
and acknowledge that you are God and there is no other. And celebrate that you come down and had concern for us. And trust that you know what you're doing. You love us. And the things that to come are far, far better than any we leave behind. Show us Jesus, we pray. Amen.